Heart podcast this week, Mark Strong's giant floating head, this time attached to the rest of him, returns to talk Cruella. How the devil are you? I think I actually might have said that. Oh no. Plus, the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that just lost out to Amazon in our attempts to buy MGM. We were just $8.45 billion short, folks. Still, jokes on them. That's a lot of money to pay for Die Another Day. Oh, yes. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, it's just me. Uh, what? And two colleagues of such lethal cunning, Geek Queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. Hello, Helen O'Hara. How are you today? I'm very, very, very well indeed. Thank you for asking. We're also joined by our great big fucking nerd himself, James Dyer. Hello. Someone pointed out on Twitter this week that nerd is actually a word, and yes, it's not a thing that, that you made up. Well, it, it could be both. It's it's it is the thing I made up, and also yes. an existing yeah. word that other people made up. Because as mm. Thor correctly points out in Avengers: Infinity War, all <laughs> words are made up. Yeah, apparently it's a cross between noob and nerd. So it's kind of a nerd in training, which I am anything but. I like to no, think. That is, but, uh, yeah, you're hey not. No, you're well, we're using it differently here. So. Yeah. Weirdly, though, I've just looked it up on Urban Dictionary, and the word underneath it, you look up nerd, and Urban it says Dictionary, one, more like nerd, and it gives you the dictionary, and the second. Word on the page is danger wank, and I'm not even going to read about that. So <laughs> let's uh, let's move hastily on. Sorry, sorry, sorry. What is a danger wank? Oh. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm, do you really want to know? No, I don't. I don't. I feel sure like we can probably. I feel like we can probably figure it out from context, can't we? <laughs> not during a squadcast call. I do not want to figure out what a danger wank is. No, not not right now. Like not like we're, I'm not suggesting we all try yeah. it. I'm just saying no, we can probably. There will be no demonstrations. This no, <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely not. Oh god. <laughs> HR, anyway, hello. Please, anyway. HR. <laughs> anyway, uh, the fact that I'm joined by just two colleagues of such lethal cunning this week means that, yet again, it is another week off for the three-fact structure. Hurrah. Needs a fourth member of the pod to make it happen, folks. Next week, we have someone whose buttocks will fit nicely into the ever-evolving fourth chair. But this week, Helen and James have the week off. Uh, much to their joy and amazement, no doubt, did yes. you have facts prepared just oh, on the off yeah, chance? Oh, yeah, sure. Like several. All the yeah. facts. Mm-hmm. Just so many yeah, facts. so many facts. I don't know what's so I can't move for facts. No, can't. Facts coming out of our wazoos. Is that what an angel wank is? No. So, yes. That's exactly what <laughs> oh, it is. Uh, it does mean the show will be at least 40 minutes shorter this week, though. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's good. Just one guest, only three sections. I'm thinking we could bring this in at an even three hours. If you really... <laughs> We really concentrate and oh, really focus. Uh, anyway, what it means is we're going to start off with the listener question. And if you liked last week's listener question, which came from David O'Keefe, at David O'Keefe, with two Ds, interesting enough. So it's David, 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 David D. O'Keefe. So I wonder if he has accidentally put in the second D or whether there is a David O'Keefe who has one D and he put in the second D to differentiate himself from the David O'Keefe with one D, or whether he is David D. O'Keefe, so he could be David Daniel O'Keefe. Do you think he maybe just pressed the key twice? Because you should always let David do the fingering. Oh, boy. Oh, no. 
I was just going to say, like, if we keep if you keep talking about putting in the D, we're going to get back to danger wanks. It's going to be a whole thing. <laughs> Mine was not a sex thing. I was referencing I purely well, I, purely I, Alien I mean, Covenant. It was very, you know, above board. Oh, uh, dude, uh-huh. no danger wanks. That's it. That's it for the danger wanks. Okay, okay. that's it. Hands no where I can see him, folks. Hands where I can see him. Anyway, <laughs> the question last week was from David O'Keefe with two Ds. Wow, he's a lucky guy. Um, and he asked, which character was not in the first film in a franchise, but since they joined, you cannot imagine the franchise without them. And we had a, a merry old time talking about this as it as pertains to movies and movie films. And we thought it was such a good question that we decided to do it again this week. But this time, taking a leaf out of the Pilot TV Podcast's book, <laughs> we're going to discuss TV shows. Oh, yes, because last week we were talking about some examples and... TV examples like Crichton from Red Dwarf. James, you said something fairly controversial. What you did said I say that it was the, the Crichton who appears in, I believe, it's the towards the end of series two of Red Dwarf. Yes, is not obviously Robert Llewellyn. No, uh, but he is Crichton. So you said it's a completely different Crichton. So well, no, when explain I said completely yourself. different Crichton, I meant a different actor. I didn't mean act, of, like it's a different yeah. like mechanoid. All right, because you, you you confused some people who called your nerb powers into question. That is not what I meant. Okay. Uh, but he might as well be different since his personality, when he's played by David Ross, is so wildly different uh, from Robert Llewellyn's incarnation that, you know. I mean, it's it's almost like, and this is not going to be one of my answers, but it's almost like Andy Dwyer in season one of Parks and Rec bears zero resemblance to Andy Dwyer in the rest of Parks and Rec, <laughs> even though they're played by the same actor. Like it, He's a completely different human being and yeah. has no real overlap. So, you know, I feel like you're allowed... But season one of that show is essentially non-canonical, isn't it? Yeah, season point, one of so. that show. Just just don't bother. And people, you know, you, you say this to people and then they go, yes, but I like to start from the start. And they start in season one, they go, it's not a good show. And I'm like, that's why I told you to skip mm. it and start in season mm-hmm. two, when it is a great show. But yeah, it's not it's not Parks and Rec at that point, really. Not really. Yeah. People say that about um, Schitt's Creek. And some people say about the US office as well, that mm. it needs to get out of the shackles of the UK office before it mm. comes into its own. Certainly whenever I did my recent rewatch with my wife, uh, I just skipped season one of The Office completely. Yeah. Because it, it's just, it's the same thing as with Parks and Rec. I mean, you say Andy Dwyer and that show is a completely different character. So is Leslie Nope. So is Leslie Nope. So, yeah, you're right. So is Michael yeah. Scott in the, uh, in the first six episodes mm-hmm. of The U.S. Office. And it just takes a little bit of time for those shows to find their feet and recalibrate and make sure the lead character is one that you want to spend time with rather than one that you want to toss out of a moving vehicle at high speed. Exactly. Um, but before we get into this question properly, a couple of ground rules, as with last week. Soaps aren't allowed. It's far too easy. Neither am I allowing adaptations of books. Uh, so, for example, if you're adapting a series of books and there's a character who's in book two, they're naturally going to come in in season two or series two, if you're speaking yeah. in British currency. So Miss Sunday and Grey Worm both disqualified. Right. And and it also means that you're, you know, thinking ahead and ruling out lots of characters from Wheel of Time when that comes Yeah. Up. Like Later Alan the Warder. <laughs> He's in episode one and you know it, James. <laughs> uh, so, yes. Yeah, so we're, what we're looking for here as well is not just recurring characters. So we're looking for characters who will come into a show, be a, a series regular, ideally be in the credits at the beginning of a show. And it's literally that you can't imagine the show without them, that they should have had that character from day one. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, I said this last week, but I'm going to say it again. The top example, and there are loads, but the top example for me is Kelsey Grammer as Dr. Fraser Crane 
who doesn't show up in Cheers until season three. But you cannot imagine that show without him. I don't think that's true. I think you can 100% imagine Cheers without Frasier. I don't think you can imagine Frasier without Frasier, because that would be a problematic <laughs> show. But Cheers, I but think But how you would you imagine Frasier if there wasn't a Cheers? Because Cheers gives you Frasier. There is no Frasier without Cheers. Sure there is. Sure there, there is. Been. It's just a show called Frasier. Yeah. <laughs> no one's going to watch You don't that need show. to have known that he went to the pub beforehand. <laughs> yeah. I think there are people who have watched Frasier who never watched Cheers. Oh, 100%. Mm. Yeah. For me, it's, it's Frasier. It's Frasier. Cheers gets a massive kick up the. I thought that it was bad. It wasn't a bad show. It wasn't a bad on, show. I think you know it, it depends. It, Cheers is very much a show of two halves, isn't it? Like the early Diane years, I would say, are vastly superior to the latter Kirstie Alley years because you don't have that same level of tension to it between Diane and Sam, which I think was the lifeblood of that show. But um, it's a great show all the way through. I started watching it in the Kirstie Alley era, so mm. she was my sort of expectation of the show. So I actually had to readjust when. When I, I went back, I didn't like Diane. <gasps> Get out, Slagger. No, but you preferred Woody over Coach, didn't you? Woody's a good answer as well, by the way. Didn't Woody was? I thought Woody was in season one and then left. No, no, no. Woody came in as a replacement for Coach Nicholas Colasanto, who died in real life. Very, very sad circumstances. Obviously, Frasier was just brought in as a character, you know, to to mix up the status quo of the show. Whereas Woody was born out of tragic circumstances mm. uh, but he's 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 my he's my comedy answer there okay. are other comedy answers that i have as well you know the aforementioned Crichton and red dwarf lynn in alan partridge the way she's brought into his life and i'm alan partridge um i'm not gonna say the one because i know you're gonna say it helen um the aforementioned parks and rec i know you have a couple of characters from that amy farrah fowler Amy Played Farrah by Mayan Bialik in yeah. The Big Bang Theory. I'm going to say her. Uh, yeah. She she really fired that show up a bit and changed the dynamic of the show. No love for Bernadette there. Bernadette I love Bernadette too. as well, yeah. but but it's Amy Farrah Fowler who really changes the dynamic of, of the show. And I know people are rolling their eyes at home going, oh, Big Bang Theory is a little rubbish. Well, I disagree. I really like that show. I think it was funny and I liked the characters. So sue me. But my dramatic answer for this... <gasps> Sorry, I'm just practicing the drama. It's fine. I have a number, as you might expect. Okay. And yes, one of them is from Law & Order. Um, <gasps> it is Sam Waterston as Jack McCoy. I know where you're going with this. But um, where am I going with this, Jimbo? You're going with Gus, Mike and Saul in Breaking Bad. Fuck you. Yes. <laughs> I'm going with Gus, Mike and Saul in Breaking Bad. Damn it. Have you? Can you see my notes? <laughs> I can see into your soul. This is really freaky and weird. Yeah, Saul Goodman. I mean, again, it's Saul's like a Frasier in that he comes into the show, has a bit of energy, a bit of brio, uh, and gets his own spinoff as a result. But for me, Mike is the best character in Breaking Bad. Uh, and Gus Fring changes that show in many, many ways as well. But Jonathan Banks is Mike Ermintrout. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. What a character. Right. And you can't imagine it without him. I think that's true. I have a couple of very, very on-brand suggestions for this. Yes. You will, you will be amazed. Can amazed. we see if James can guess them? Because he okay. guessed mine, Come on, which was on-brand uh, oh, in fairness. You're, you're going to go with um, Castiel, whatever his chops is, aren't you? I am going to go with Castiel. He is a very, very, very good good answer to this. But he does. Like, he becomes, it goes from being a show about two guys to being a core trio. So yeah. he fundamentally does alter the dynamic is of the show. Is he Misha... Misha Collins. He joins yeah, Collins. in I'm going to say four. it's three or f- yeah, four. Yeah. Okay. He clasps Dean and raises him from hell. He does what with him? He clasps him <laughs> by the shoulder. There's I've a, read there's that a mark. Slash fiction. 
And uh, yeah, and he he does become an essential element. It was really, it's a really interesting thing because they had this big conversation behind the scenes at Supernatural where they were like, you know, if there are all these demons, there should also be angels. And they resisted having angels in Supernatural for a long time because they couldn't figure out how to make it work. And then they basically ended up deciding we should have angels, but they should be dicks. Like that's how it should work. That they're they are angels, but they're like super unhelpful and actually not really aligned with humanity's interests at, at all. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see them figure that out through Castiel, who has his moments of being a dick and being completely above human interests, but also is weird and strange and madly in love with Dean, which I think all the best people are. So uh, yeah, he's he's a great character. Who else was I going to say, James? Uh, were you going to say Spike? I was going to say Spike from Buffy. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> There's a reason I do the part of the TV podcast. We mentioned one this. Yeah, we mentioned this last week, but it does have to be Spike. He came in season two. Um, sorry, season two, episode three of Buffy. He turned mm-hmm. up for the first time. It took him a, a little bit of time to find his ground, and certainly, I think he is the most interesting arc of maybe anybody in Buffy. I mean, we can have a discussion as well about Faith, who I think is also fascinating, also Mm. a later edition. She comes and goes, though, doesn't she? She comes and goes. She's not a series regular in the way that Spike is. But Spike's arc is genuinely great. With the exception of that one episode, Spike's arc is absolutely great. With the the exception of that one episode that was just ill-conceived on just so Mm -hmm. many levels, and I'm not even going to get into it, but if you read about Spike, you'll instantly see which one I mean. Um, and uh, yeah, but but otherwise, I think his his kind of uh, development as a character is fascinating. Mm. Yeah, I think he's great. I can't imagine Buffy without Spike. He was so good. But then it was one of those things, you know, famously that you know he wasn't supposed to. His fandom grew exponentially to the point where they had to find some way to keep him around because people mm. just loved old William the Bloody. Like Castiel, you know. Um, sometimes the fandoms know what they're talking about. Sometimes. Occasionally. Occasionally. Uh, any Star Trek people? I thought you were going to maybe mention some. I mean, some. You, you can go with so many. If you count Star Trek as one big entity, you don't. then we don't. you can chuck them all. But the obvious answer is, of course, Seven of Nine, mm-hmm. who joined Star Trek Voyager and, in, and made that better by magnitudes. But also Worf when he joined Deep say, Space Nine. Do you kind yeah. Worf joining Deep Space Nine? Because he wasn't in season one of Deep Space Nine. Because, yeah, this is where the warrior, and, and I think it coincides with uh, with Avery Brooks shaving his head and growing his little goatee back. Which, yeah, and, and shaven-headed Avery Brooks Indeed. is a new character and is much better. Yeah. Indeed. Yes, and I think you know, shaven-headed badass Cisco. Actually, the show increases in quality and depth when Wolf comes in, and when you know Cisco shaves his head. He's the opposite of Samson. All his strength is in his baldness, as is so often the case in Star Trek. Yeah, I can't believe that neither of you mentioned the West Wing by now. Well, I mean, it's, it's difficult with the West Wing because yeah. I like Will Bailey. I like a lot, but I'm Who's not Will sure. Will Bailey replaced uh, Sam Seaborn, so he Rob Lowe. So it's um, Josh okay. Molina. Okay. So you go with him, you can go with Kate Harper, Mary McCormack's character. Matt Santos, I think, if anything, is one where, you know, he is so integral to that show. But again, it's a bit of a passing of the torch thing. Like, it wouldn't make sense for him to be in from the beginning. But equally, Santos, I think, is synonymous with The West Wing for me. The problem with this question in The West Wing is that The West Wing cast, the, the, the best characters are all there on day one. And they are all mm. fully formed on day one. And they don't yeah. change that much. And Well, Toby does, but not for the better. But the less said about that, the better. <laughs> No, no. So it doesn't quite fit this question. Even though the answer is usually the West Wing, in this case, Mm. it may not be. No, no, it's not. I would say, just throwing out shows, one that did spring to mind, it's not going to show a particular light, but I think Desmond in Lost, people forget that Desmond didn't turn up to the second season of Lost. Not Desmond in Desmond's. 
Yeah, no. Uh, so I'd say he's probably one. Juliet, to a lesser extent, I think she's obviously, by the end of it, she's a core part of the uh, the Lost cast. Anyone in Friday Night Lights? Michael B. Jordan, I would say. But again, That's it's right. not like, and, and I think he is, but again, it's, it's a show of two halves. Like when he goes from Dylan to East Dylan, Dylan. you see, Dylan, uh, you <laughs> son of a bitch. Uh, when, like the whole cast kind of does a bit of a turnover there. Mm. Um, but yeah, Michael B. Jordan's mm. so fucking good in that. So he brings up the wire. Michael B. Jordan's a natural connection yeah. to The Wire. So yeah. The Wire's got, again, tons of characters who uh, who sh- show up in seasons but two, that's because the focus five. shifts, doesn't yeah. it, Shift each season. season. So again, season, it's quite yeah. a difficult one. Yeah. yeah. Amy Ryan's Beady is great, but again, she's mainly sort of focused Beedy, on Beedy, the Beedy. second season. Um, Brother Muzone is great, but he comes and goes in season three. Mm. Uh, Tommy uh, Carchetti, obviously, Gaden, Gaden Gillen's fantastic. Shot, but again, he's yeah. another season three one as well, really. I mean, he persists after that. And then all the kids in season four are fantastic. Uh, oh, I God. think that's a really season good season four. too. Oh. But again, like, each season of that feels a little bit self-contained. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, there's there's, mm. there's overlap. And the best characters, Omar Stringer, you know, they're there from the beginning. Fair enough. Uh, interesting. Anything else? Any more? I, I, for example, I'm sure some people are, are yelling Emma Peel at the, uh, at the podcast Fair. Device yeah. of Choice right now, Diana Rigg in The Avengers. Helen, the one I refrained from saying, my, my, one of my comedy choices was Adam Scott. Uh, in yes, I mean, Parks Ben and, and Chris, I think, in Parks and Rec are both just delightful, delightful additions. Their arrival does kind of mark the start of the golden age of, of Parks and Rec. So I would actually add both of them because I think Chris Traeger's enthusiasm for everything um, and his clean living, like, there has never been a funnier clean living character on TV ever. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was trying to think, by the way, as well, 30 Rock and stuff, but I feel like most of the great characters in 30 Rock were there at the beginning. Yeah, this happens quite a lot with with sitcoms, mm. especially. You know, things like your procedural shows tend to have a high turnover of cast members, especially the longer they go on. So you'll always find people coming in season seven. For example, I was going to say, yes, NCIS, Siva and NCIS was a great character yeah, who came in, call, yeah. really injected the show again with with lots of energy and an attitude. And then when she left the show, it really went downhill for yeah, me. Yeah, it did. But the, a lot of shows tend to have their main casts baked into the premise right away. So Friends, for example, everyone's talking about Friends at the moment because of the Friends reunion that has, have seen. has happened. But, you know, that's them right from the off. Six Friends. And mm. even though the best character in the show, Gunther, comes into it later on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'm not even sure James Michael Tyler would make that claim. No. To be, no. <laughs> to be honest. Almost certainly not. But listen, I think we've probably talked about this uh, long enough. Before I get people to send in uh, questions for future installments, what is the Friends reunion like, Jimbo? I haven't I haven't seen it yet. I'm not even sure I want to see it, if I'm honest with you. So it's, it's the better part of so it's two hours, essentially. And it's very good, but it's a touch overproduced. Like there's a lot going on. So it's at its best when you have the friends, for example, you have them all walking onto the soundstage and seeing the sets which have been recreated and reminiscing. Like that's lovely. Uh, and those are the best moments of this. When they're sitting on the couch with James Corden, it's fine. Like again, it's, it's then- 20%. <laughs> well, $2 million each, yeah. Mm. You know, they're reminiscing about stuff. There's some great, and there's some amazing revelations in as well. The Jennifer Aniston, David Schwimmer thing is kind of a really big deal. The what now with the who? That, uh, oh, they had a thing. Not an (gasps) actual thing, but they properly had a sort of like, will they, won't they, we fancy each other to death thing on series one. So when they had their first, uh, they were not, in fact, they were both in relationships at various points, which is why nothing ever happened. And the first time they ever kiss is Ross and Rachel's first kiss on the show. But all of that sexual tension is proper real. And I thought that was a lovely, uh, lovely thing that they shared. Um, Oh, 
But in addition to that, there are things like talking to, like, like David Beckham comes on and tells you which friend Why? he would be. It's like, who gives a shit? Kit Harrington randomly turns up to talk about talking about it. You're like, again, I, I mean, don't care. And then it's people around the world. He's a Joey if ever there was one, but okay. <laughs> well, smell the fart acting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I believe that. I apologise if I've just libeled him, but it just I feel like he is. And there are lots of kind of random things in there which are trying to be funny. And some of them are, like they bring out people like Gunter and Mr. Heckles and stuff. But all of that feels like distraction from the main event, which is the main, the core cast talking. Yeah. And it's lovely seeing how they get on. It's very teary. It's actually very emotional. But I, yeah, a lot of it is distracting. And you just feel a bit like if they had just calmed it down a bit it maybe would have been more effective. That said, it is a billion times better than the Inbetweeners reunion, which is excruciating. But it's good, and it's on Sky and Now TV if people want to watch it. Yeah, but it feels like one of those shows where maybe they've, they've overthought it or maybe they weren't confident enough that people would want to sit sit down and watch these six mega-famous people who, you know, we've I think it's because it's for fan television. Because it, HBO Max have paid a lot of money to do it. They're making a huge amount of rain out of it. So it's a mm. huge hoopla. Mm. So And they're trying to drive subscriptions to their service. So I think they've tried to turn it into something huge big as opposed to just like a low-key it's already something big it's already something massive it's, it's six yeah, friends 17 years on getting them yeah. all together so that's 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 mm. all you need i would argue you, know, you can maybe have them in slightly different settings and break them off into pairings or something like that but you don't need all the bells and whistles you know it's not a dog and pony show so I don't, uh, listen anyway i just watched charlie's angels full throttle last night for reasons anyway and i had forgotten that that film Basically, I'd forgotten everything about that film, almost everything. And I was like, hey, Matt LeBlanc's really cool and funny. I like him. And yes. anyway, that if was If we that. were to do an episode of the ranking for movies starring the Friends, right. do you think anything with Matt LeBlanc in it would be in the top 10? <laughs> Lost in Space. <laughs> I like Lost no. in Space. I had fun with that back in the day. Do you think anything with Matthew Perry would be in the top 10? The whole nine yards. I do not agree. <laughs> the I whole ten yards. Think. I mean, are we allowing episodes of the West Wing? Because if no, so, we're yes. Not. I mean, I'm not keeping the no. West Wing. I, really no, I do, do too. I'm going to. Um, okay, okay. Matthew Perry's best film, Seventeen again. Yeah. All right. There you go. There you go. That's number one in the Friends movie ranking. And oh, no, I just give myself an idea for an episode of the ranking. So <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for everybody. This segment has yielded some gold after all, uh, because I think on that note, it is time for us to pivot. Pivot. Very good. Into another section of the show. If you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast, as David D. O'Keefe, the man with two Ds, uh, found to his cost two weeks in a row, folks. Two weeks two in a row. Weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Uh, we will not be discussing his question on next week's show unless we books. get to radio plays, books, <laughs> theatre. <laughs> who knows what else we could do um, but if you do want to have your question read out then get in touch with me on Twitter I'm at Chris Hewitt slide into my DMs or just reply to one of my amazing and hilarious tweets once you've calmed yourself down and stopped laughing time to pivot pivot straight into the movie news section folks what's been happening what has been happening I hear James Bond has a new boss yes indeed he does uh, it's Jeff Bezos Amazon have been splashing the $8 billion and Amazon have acquired MGM, which also includes one James Kevin Bond, 007. Kevin, mm -hmm. wow. Uh, Kevin that's canonically his middle name. Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's a fact. Um, but they did, uh, I think Eon jumped on Twitter to put out the fires uh, of everyone sort of burning the world down over the chance of uh, Bond films now going straight to Amazon streaming to say that they are theatrical experiences and will be coming to theatres. 
Okay. James Bond will return to theatres. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it does feel like we're headed for a world where about three companies own everything. Yeah. Um, and, and I, for one, welcome Jeff Bezos as our new, <laughs> as overlord, our new overlord of overlord. everything. I just, Is that how you pronounce it? I've been mispronouncing it for... Well, I may for well be mispronouncing Bezos, it. Bezos, Bezos, Bezos. But I, for one, welcome him as our yes, new yes. overlord. So. Jeff, we are available to work for you. <laughs> And it won't cost that much. At the low, low price of 0.5% of your net worth, we will all three of us come to work for you. All three. All three. Absolutely. Mm. And uh, unlike Liz, I will actually, you know, make an effort. Yeah. I've been phoning it in for a while, folks, let's be honest. But um, yeah, this is is, uh, dismaying, I would say. Dismaying. Mm. I, I just don't know. I don't know why, because they could have the best of intentions and they could be, you know, making the best of films. But when you have Bezos making a statement, you know, and he uses the word beloved intellectual property. (laughs) (laughs) That's a proper, I know now why you cry, but it is something I could never do. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) The beloved intellectual property. (laughs) The human factor is somewhat lacking from this. It's quite the flex though, isn't it? That, you know, because people talked about when No Time Should I get being pushed, you know, maybe Amazon will buy it for streaming and Amazon like, buy that? Fuck you. We'll buy all of MGM. Well, but it's a better deal. I mean, so yeah. they were talking about, what was it? For, I think the, the rumour is that 400 was offered for No Time to Die and, and they were holding out for 600 million. So oh, they million, said no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. $400 was a $400 bit much. $400 would be, would be, I mean, it'd be a lot for a ticket, but it wouldn't be bad for the whole film. It was my opening bid. Yeah. $400. Wow. You're richer than I thought you were, Chris. Wow. Anyway, and then, but, but uh, yeah, but paying what, $8.5 billion for all of MGM seems comparatively like a much better deal. Yes, now they've got the MGM library. And listen, maybe this is a good thing in that they'll take the MGM library, which is full of thousands of great films, and maybe they'll... Make them available. Maybe they'll make them available, give yeah. them a bit mm-hmm. of a reverb, a refamp them, a shush them up a little bit, and stick them onto Prime. There is some concern about what this means for physical media. I still mm-hmm. love a bit of physical media every now and again. Back to Danger Wanks. Absolutely. And oh uh, so are they going to be, are these films going to be available on DVD? Are they going to be available on Blu-ray? I saw someone who is in programming lament this, saying that he has a sneaking suspicion that this means that it'll be very, very difficult for repertory cinemas to program MGM stuff. And there's a lot of great titles in there. This is already a big co- um, concern, isn't it? Because I know that there was a lot of consternation when Disney bought Fox, that the Fox catalogue has traditionally been one of the ones that it is possible to get hold of if you're a, if you're a rep cinema and you can, you know, you can put on Alien or Aliens or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And Disney, by contrast, have made it extremely difficult historically for cinemas to put on their older films. So uh, there, there was real concern there. I don't know how that's playing out at the moment. Obviously, for most of the last year, it's been a moot point because of cinemas being closed. But you've got to hope that this will free up access to these films because the problem with streaming, the problem with the lack of physical media is that a vast number of films. So it's something like half the films ever released on VHS never came out on DVD. Mm-hmm. And Blu-ray had like even mm. less than half, I think, of the DVD releases. So we're already seeing fewer and fewer films make their way down the chain. And streaming, while it has the potential to reverse that, has actually not really done so. So that's the big issue. Will we still be able to get all of these films from the past? Will they still be available consistently to customers? And 
you've got to hope that, you know, if there is an upside to this, that it means that, you know, a huge slate of MGM greats appear on Prime. That would be at least something. And uh, listen, I like Jeff Bezos. I mm-hmm. think that guy, he's he's got everyone's best interest at heart. And I think <laughs> he has cinema's best interest at heart as well. Uh, Jeff, call me. Slide into my DMs. I am. You have no idea how available I am. Anyway, let's talk about something else. There's so much to talk about this week. There's so much to talk about this week, uh, including the fact that we got our first proper glimpse at The Eternals. We did. We did. Now, this was an interesting one because I watched this trailer and thought, I I thought this is fantastic. And it could just be that I've been starved of Marvel love for far too long. But it was fantastic in in a long time. But I really loved this. Like, it looked beautiful. It felt very Mm. different. It felt distinct. You know, it had a bit of Chloe Zhao love to the the visuals. Uh, So I was totally here for it. But then the reaction on social media was, you know, some people saying it looked boring. Some people just just laying into Chloe Zhao for having the temerity to make a Marvel movie. Fuck it. Um, it was a yeah. bit of a sewer on social media for a it while was, after this. It was amazing, wasn't it? <sighs> it was as film Twitter, which again, I have to stress, is the worst Twitter, including the Twitter with literal actual Nazis <laughs> laid into Chloe Zhao. And, you know, and they're falling over themselves to praise Chloe Zhao and her aesthetic on movies like The Rider and Nomadland. But the second that same aesthetic is applied to a blockbuster, it's... It's anathema to them. I just thought it was very, very funny. Uh, bless them. Yeah, no, I know. I think the the only uh, funny kind of meme to come out of this is all the suggestions of where were the Eternals during X in the uh, yes. MCU. And and look, I, I think it'll be. F- I, I imagine the film will in some way address that. I know in the comics that they have been literally unaware of who they are at various uh, points in the comics history. So they have. <laughs> They were all playing World identity. of Warcraft, I think is yeah, what it is. Yeah, they've hidden their identity from themselves. So they didn't <laughs> know they could help, basically, before now. So it'll be interesting to see how they, that plays out on, in the film. I love that we don't really know much as a result of this trailer. I'm very happy yeah, with mm-hmm. that. Yeah, very little. I thought the trailer looked fine. I think it looks nice. Chloe Shao's aesthetic looks very, very pretty and lovely. This is very much a teaser trailer. It's very bad about mood yeah. and tone and visuals. Mm. And that's cool. I'd like to get a sense of the overall story. But then again, I don't, in a way. I kind of want to go into this one uh, knowing as little about it as possible. The one thing that did char for me was the... Was the epilogue they stuck on at the end? Yeah, uh, where it was a bit of bit of a giggle and it's like, the Eternals jokes. <laughs> yeah, the Eternals are sitting around going, "Oh, what happens now that Captain Rogers? No one's ever called him that. That's fucking weird for a start." But Captain Rogers <laughs> and Captain Iron Steve Man America have Rogers, gone. Though. <laughs> yes, uh, who's going to lead the Avengers now? And then Richard Madden goes, "Well, maybe I could lead them." And it's like, "Well, yeah, I can." You, and they're you, all like, "Lol, no! Remember yeah. what happened last time, Rich? <laughs> <laughs> you stood by." And let them fucking lose to Thanos, you bell end. So, you know, why should you get to lead them? So that felt a little bit like, hey, this isn't just a full on two hour Terrence Malick impression. We do have, <laughs> we do have some connection to the MCU here as well. I, I just, I for one, I'm just thankful that they've managed to bring Chloe Zhao's beautiful sweeping vistas as we saw in No, no Man Land to Camden Town because it's been, you know, a long time coming. <laughs> so yeah, I know nothing about these characters. I've I've bought the um, the Neil the, Gaiman one. No, the Jack Kirby one from the 70s. Mm. I've bought that, and I've I just haven't got around to reading it yet. So I know not a lot about the Eternals, apart from was Louise Redknapp in them? She was. Yes, she was. Yeah. Yeah. So, but they released some character sketches earlier in the year. So 
Icarus or Icarus, I'm not sure how they've decided to pronounce it in the film. He's Richard Madden and he's mm-hmm. the tactical leader and most powerful Eternal and takes pride in keeping the other Eternals safe. Moral, kind and charismatic, Icarus boasts the power of incredible strength, flight and the ability to not be sued by DC. <laughs> the ability to project beams of intense cosmic energy from his eyes. I can do that. Yeah, all right. He signs a Bit Superman-y, but okay. And then he's got a romantic thing going on, doesn't he? Does he? With Does he? Gemma yeah. Chan. With Gemma, Gemma Chan, Chan. Who yeah. is billed first on the credits uh, yeah. on the poster. And also another mm-hmm. uh, interesting wrinkle on the poster as well. Uh, I brought this to people's attention on Twitter. It went quite viral. 63 mm. likes. Uh, but uh, did you notice that the screenplay is credited to Chloe Shao? Yes. And Chloe Shao. And... Another writer, Patrick Burley. Mm. But this is a Writers Guild of America convention. So if you write in conjunction with a second person, then you get the ampersand. Mm-hmm. And then if you also do a draft on your own, then you mm-hmm. get a credit on your own. So it has happened before. And there was an example in response to your tweet, which I've already forgotten Jeffrey what Bohm. it was. Jeffrey Bohm Jeffrey on Bohm, Lethal you. Weapon 3, I believe it was. He must have written a draft on his own and then co-wrote a draft with someone else. But I just love the idea of Chloe Shao being so talented that she co-writes a screenplay with herself. And she's now so powerful post-Nomadland that she can get credited twice for that. And then I began thinking about how does she do that? You know, does one Chloe type and one Chloe paces? How does it work? Is she the multiple woman? Wow. I mean, look, it would explain how on Nomadland, so she produced, I think, wrote, directed and edited Yes. Uh, so she's probably feeling underused on Eternals and, and you know, <laughs> double writing the screenplay is the only way she felt she was pulling her weight. Uh, so who else do we have? We have, in the Eternals, we have Cersei. Cersei is Gemma Chan. She mm-hmm. is the Eternal with an affinity for humanity. So apparently Cersei... Unlike, unlike the one in Game of Thrones. Hey. Yes. Yeah. I understood that reference. She's been in love with Icarus for centuries and helps him to recruit the Eternals for one last mission. She can manipulate matter. Then we have Salma Hayek as Ajak. She's a spiritual leader of the Eternals. So they have two leaders and that doesn't work, folks. that was uh, Louise Redknapp. <laughs> it's like Roy Evans and Sherrod Houllier being joint managers of Liverpool FC. It doesn't it? work. It mm. doesn't work. It's exactly like that. Uh, her wisdom has helped guide the team since they arrived here from their home planet to help defend humanity from the deviants. I'm reading this. Is some, this is, I'm not making this up. This is written no, down. No, no. From the deviants. The bad guys in this are called the deviants. Their power is danger wank. Oh, God. Ajak can not only heal humans and Eternals alike, but she's able to communicate with Celestials as well. It's all getting very confusing. Ah. We've met some Celestials. That's okay. Oh, yeah, we have. We have, we have indeed. Then we have Phaistos, or Fastos, played by Brian Tyree Henry. Yes. And he is blessed with the power of invention. He can create whatever he can imagine, provided that he has enough raw materials at his disposal. He's Forge. Over the centuries, although I think he may be predated Forge, I'm not sure. Over the centuries... Phaistos Fastos has helped nudge humanity forward technologically whilst always keeping his brilliance hidden in the shadows. I mm. do hope that they don't retcon Tony Stark's brilliance here by suggesting that- You're so that obsessed with Tony Stark being the only one who's allowed to be brilliant. Leave him no, alone. No, I've never said that. I have never said that. What I am saying is that I hope that he doesn't get a, a nudge, a boost from somewhere else. I think that would be cheating a little bit. Macari, played by Lauren Ridloff, is the fastest woman in the universe who uses her cosmically powered super speed to scout planets for the Eternals. And as the only deaf Eternal, the sonic boom that accompanies her cosmic running does not affect her. Cool. Handy. Yeah. 
Uh, Druig, played by Barry Keoghan, can use cosmic energy to control the minds of men. Now, he's withdrawn from the other Eternals. Oh, oh, no. You think he's a baddie? Maybe. Who mm. knows? Gilgamesh, played by Ma Dong Siok, is uh, the strongest and kindest member of the team. That's nice. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. And he's capable of projecting a powerful exoskeleton of cosmic energy. And he has become legendary for his fights with Deviant <laughs> throughout history. Does uh, he log into his computer with? Strongest Eternal. <laughs> uh, then we have Kingo, who is played by Kamel Nanjiani. Uh, he's the Eternal with the power to project cosmic energy projectiles with his hands. And he is, in the present day, a famous Bollywood star. Uh, and then we have Angelina Jolie as Athena, who is a fierce warrior who can form any handheld weapon she can think of with cosmic energy. Yes. And then we have Sprite, who appears to be a 12-year-old girl, but it's actually immortal like all the Eternals. And she can cast lifelike illusions. And she's played by Leah McHugh. So there you go. Longer than I all anticipated, right. but that the Eternals. Now we know the Eternals. Hurrah. Yeah. So there you go. There's your Eternals 101, folks. Um, looks good. Looks promising. Let's see what happens with trailer number two. Speaking of trailers, mm. uh, last night in Soho, we got our first good look at the new Edgar Wright film. Yes. Which has a time twisting element. Not quite time travel, but certainly time sensitive. Mm. <laughs> time sensitive. Yeah. You yeah. have to watch it before <laughs> midnight or disintegrates. Yeah, I thought this was a really effective trailer. Gives us a, a f- our first look at Thomas and Mackenzie, who's um, Ellie uh, or Eloise in the present day, um, and then the, this 1960s singer that she kind of sees in in her visions or like in her mm. dreams or something. She has some kind of connection with anyway. Um, who's played by Anya Taylor Joy, and uh, it looks eerie and creepy and. Mm. I'm excited, yeah. Yeah, looks great. Looks very, very good indeed. Uh, we're obviously going to keep an eye on that one. And uh, what do you guys make of the Tomorrow War trailer? See, I, obviously this is an Amazon film, isn't it? And I, um, which means that it's fabulous, isn't that right? <laughs> no, I, I, so I, 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 I was, wasn't quite sure what to expect from this. I mean, I'm a big fan of anything kind of sci-fi trashy, and but I thought this started wonkily and then picked up really well and by the end of it I was absolutely committed I really want to watch it but uh, so it starts with a football game where it's sort of a temporal explosion causes soldiers from the future to arrive and then draft people from the present to go and fight this future war against aliens which if anyone knows anything about temporal mechanics now that's fucking stupid surely the best thing to do would be for the people from the future to come to the past and avert the war in the fucking first place so you know that would seem to be the more sensible option but no 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 they're taking people from the past to go to the future to fight the losing battle against the aliens nevertheless it gives uh, chris pratt a chance to get some kind of cybernetic thing put on his arm and get a machine gun and kill some things yeah and i'm all for all those things i mean it it looks it looks fun it looks potentially familiar but um but hopefully it'll be good yeah i'm excited yeah yeah i thought yeah. it's a lot of fun it, it looks like a hundred films we've seen before so hopefully it can find something new amongst that and fuse those elements together nicely mm. It must be good because no film critics from the future have arrived to tell us that it's terrible that is and true. stop watching it. So. True, true. I'm, go- I'm going off that. So there's some casting news to talk about as well. Mm. James, you, you said that the Tomorrow War trailer starts wonkily, and mm. that's exactly what Timothy Chalamet is going to do. He is going to start oh, wonkily boy. and oh, end God. wonkily because he is going to play, as had been rumoured for some time, Willy Wonka in a prequel about Willy Wonka that every time you mention it on Twitter... 
people roll their eyes and they do the mm. eye rolling emoji and they like, oh, what's the fucking point? We don't need this film. There's no way that a prequel establishing how an iconic character came to be could possibly be entertaining in the week that Cruella is released. But I say to you, Exhibit A, Cruella, which we'll talk about later on. Mm. But Exhibit B, crucially, with this movie, it's Paul King's it's Paul first King. move since Paddington and Paddington 2, a.k.a. the greatest one-two punch since Sam Raimi took some Evil Dead out for some laughs. And therefore, I'm on board. Anything that Paul King does, because he could have done anything after Paddington 2, quite frankly, and he has chosen to make this Willy Wonka prequel. So there's got to be something here, right? There's Which got to be something here. Will be a musical and will have Chalamet apparently singing and dancing. So that's intriguing. I think that could be fun. I might, look, I'm, we're going to get into it soon, but my gen- general stance against prequels of iconic characters does stand. <laughs> Even this week, it stands. Uh, but at the same time, you know, every day is Christmas Eve and I'm, I'm hoping for the best. And I certainly think that the people involved in this give me hope, even if the subject matter does make me roll my eyes, emoji-wise or not. <laughs> Gabriel LaBelle is going to play a young Steven Spielberg, but not really. In right. the movie that Spielberg is making about his childhood, but not really, in which Seth Rogen is going to play his uncle, but not really. Michelle Williams is going to play his mum, but not really. And Paul Dano is going to play his dad, but not really. So Gabriel LaBelle is the young Spielberg-ish. Not really Spielberg. Yeah. yeah. Well done, Gabriel. That That is exciting. Yeah. I know nothing about him. He's got a good name. I like the mm-hmm. way it trips off the tongue. Gabriel LaBelle. Could be good. Um, uh, <laughs> Could be yeah, good, look. he said, of a Steven Spielberg film. Could be good. <laughs> Could be good. Could be good. This Steven Spielberg guy, he might be able to make a film. Who knows? <laughs> Something nostalgic about an American promise. childhood. You know, it could be up his alley. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, there's not much to say about that. We don't know what that film is going to be yet, but there's plenty to say, I think, about the last two bits of casting news. One, this broke just after the podcast went up because of course I fucking did. Henry Cavill. Henry, mm. Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill. He's going to star in Chad Stahelski's yes. Highlander yes, reboot. Because the only one. There cannot only be one. There must be many. (laughs) And one of them must be Geralt of Rivia. Uh, I I could not be more excited about this. I'm excited (laughs) that this film is happening. Uh, I'm excited that Henry Cavill potentially will be in it. I don't know whether he's going to be playing the main... The thing is, like, so we don't know a great deal about this reboot type thing, but it has to involve a McLeod, otherwise you can't really call it Highland. Yeah. (laughs) So it has to be. But, you know, I think he could make a good Kurgan as Mm -hmm. well. Like, yeah, that that could work for me. I was just assuming he was the Highlander. I was assuming he was a Highlander so, as well. Ha- because how he is his maybe, French accent? We don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, indeed. As, as people pointed out, I did that last week on Twitter and I got well actually within about five <laughs> seconds. People going, I think you'll find Christopher Lambert is Swiss. That's like, oh, oh okay. Like okay. they don't speak French in Switzerland. Yeah, it's the same thing. Um, so it's 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 all good. Uh, yeah, this is. I'm I'm excited about this because I think I I'm I don't have a huge amount of affection for Highlander. Oh, I think it's going wrong. Not? I know it's amazing. It's a terrible film. It's an amazing. It's an film. amazing terrible film. <laughs> it's an amazing terrible film. And the second one is just a terrible terrible film. The, but, the second uh, one is hey, unforgettable. Look, I have yeah. watched every Highlander film, and there's like six of them. I've also watched the whole of the Highland TV series yeah, and a lot of the spin-off Raven and the Wolf TV series. <laughs> 
Like I, I, I lived in France for a year, and there wasn't a lot of like TV on that wasn't game shows. A lot of it is in French, but they it's filmed had, in Paris, yeah, isn't it? Those they had mm. they had Highlander, the show, and The Raven on um, MCs, and so I used to watch those all the time, and they were actually quite fun. Mm. So I have quite a lot of time for him. Is, is he Connor or Duncan? He's Duncan, isn't he? He's, Duncan is Adrian Dolan. Yeah, Connor is Christophe yeah. Lambert. I think it's 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 not terribly well made, Highlander, shall I say? But <laughs> I, I have How I do have fun with it. You? The soundtrack is incredible. The soundtrack wants amazing. to live forever. Yeah, Queen's soundtrack knocks her soundtrack for Flash Gordon <laughs> into a cocked hat. If you ask me, if, if listen, I might as well go for it. I'm making all sorts of controversial statements about Highlander. I might as well go all in. Um, but yes, I think that this re- remake with a director who is. Good. Unlike Russell Mulcahy, Indeed. Uh, you know, no stranger to coherence in Chance Tahelski. <laughs> I think that could be good. Someone who actually oh. makes fight scenes where you can tell what's going on. That mm. would be a good thing. And, you know, I think Henry Cavill would be a great Conor McLeod. I know you haven't seen The Witcher, Chris, but if you'd watched his uh, sword fight in mm. the first episode of The Witcher, it is off the chain. It's There's good. a massive choreographed sword fight. And it's fantastic. And the way they do it, if you watch it, uh, Cavill did a, a thing on uh, on Twitter just showing how they did it, where the sword is just like, it's just the handle of the sword and they CG in the blade at the end, which is how he does it as a kind of oneer. But it's, yeah, it's really fucking cool. Really fucking cool. And Christopher Lambert, while I love him as Conor McLeod, you know, the last ninja he was not. <laughs> Did you ever see his Beowulf? Oh, I beg your pardon. <laughs> True. I don't think I did. I saw a subway, but never his Beowulf. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. Uh, but yes, we'll see what happens with that. Because whilst I'm excited about this, I don't want anything to derail Chad Tehelski directing John Wick's four and five. Mm. Fair. If we suddenly got word that he had handed them over to another director, I mean, for example, we have a film coming up in the review section in which a director takes over a franchise a couple of films in, and perhaps it isn't as good as the first two. I hope that Stahelski does the final parts of John Wick, is what I'm saying. And the last bit of casting news I want to talk about this week is the fresh breaking story that Aaron Taylor Johnson is going to play Craven. The Hunter in the Craven the Hunter spin-off solo movie that's going to form part of what they're actually genuinely calling over there at Sony, the Sony Pictures Universe of Marvel Characters or Spump. <laughs> now <laughs> It's a Simpsons gag. <laughs> do you really have to have your universe acronym sound so much like Spump? <laughs> What's going on there? Yeah, I, I mm, yes, I, mm, I, don't, <laughs> I just, I, I, I've said so much of this before. Like, let bad guys be bad guys. Don't make them the heroes of their own films. I don't. Cruella de Vil. Uh, right, well, we're going to get into that, aren't we? I just, ah, oh, he's, uh, he's an interesting bad guy to a point. I would. I would question how maybe relevant he is to a modern audience and how much trouble they're going to have in any way getting behind a dude who hunts. <laughs> yeah, his whole thing is he's a trophy hunter, isn't it? Yeah. Like, that's his whole deal. I, I yeah. feel like that's maybe out of step with the times, just a little bit more than it was when he was, when he was invented. Just because he's the protagonist of the movie doesn't mean that we have to like him. That's you know, true, so, of course. So it, he might still be a bad dude. I'm just confused by the casting of this because if they're trying to uh, reconcile Spumpk 
with the MCU <laughs> and have some sort of massive spunk mook boo miku miku spunk um miku oh, no. miku miku spunk <laughs> oh no <laughs> that sounds <laughs> you know if they want to bring these movies together and miku spunk then <laughs> Then I, I think it might be slightly confusing how Aaron Taylor Johnson, who was, of course, Quicksilver in the MCU, playing Craven the Hunter. So how can he possibly reconcile those I, two? I don't, think they're, I don't think they're thinking that way. I don't think they're planning on any crossovers. <laughs> but, uh, I don't think they're planning on any crossovers beyond Spidey himself. Yes. And I think even that has, you know, as we've seen in recent years, been under under threat. Well, I for one celebrate what Sony have been doing with their Marvel properties, <laughs> and long may it continue. Well, are they owned by Jeff Bezos too? <laughs> uh, should we explain who Craven the Hunter is very quickly? I mean, must we? Yeah, he's a he's a big game hunter. He's uh, I think a witch doctor has given him um, powers. You know, so he's sure. he's he's more he's uh, got sharper senses than most. He's stronger than most. I think and he, he has ages a lion slower skin as well. Jacket. He has yeah. He wears a, a whole bunch of animal skins and uh, is very proud of having. You know, you know, hunted down the most dangerous beasties, which is why he's then obsessed with hunting Spider-Man because he apparently doesn't mind hunting people, which I don't know is a different thing, guys. But sure, I guess whatever. But he's a spider person, so it's totally <sighs> fine. Anyway, so yeah, there's a whole white hunter black heart thing going on here. I I think he's inherently very problematic, and I look forward to seeing how they get around all of it. J.C. Chandor is the director Chandler. of this movie. Yeah, so, good director. Yep, good director. I'm. Not fully on board. I'm anticipating this with great, great anticipation. Uh, there'll be spump everywhere in just a few years' time. So let's see what happens with that. Lastly, this week, two very sad deaths to report. Uh, so Kevin Clark, Kevin Clark, who played Freddie the drummer in School of Rock, was killed this week in Chicago. He was uh, riding a bike and he was struck by a car. The other day, and uh, yeah, that's really sad. He was thirty-two years old, folks. God. Thirty-two years old. Yeah, that was. I was really. Sad. I was just watching School of Rock again recently, and it's it's such a charming film. And the the young child actors, including Kevin, are just so likable in it that you just wanted nothing but good things for them. So, so yeah, I mean, that's no age at all. Um, tributes this week, obviously, from other cast members, which was lovely to see. But, but yeah, really, really sad. Really sad. He was a musician these days. He he didn't really make any more movies after after School of Rock, and he had just formed a band in Chicago. Very, very sad indeed. And Samuel E. Wright, who was the voice of Sebastian in Disney's The Little Mermaid and was the original Broadway Mufasa as well uh, in the theatre show directed by Judy Taymor, mm. has died at the age of 74. And yeah, I mean, look, he didn't need to do a huge amount to be remembered for his film work because Sebastian is genuinely one of the funniest sidekick characters in Disney history. And and he just gives him so much heart and so much life and, and a little bit of kind of pathos. A lot of the kind of comedy animal sidekicks are just comic, whereas Sebastian has a sort of uh, caretaker role for Ariel as, as well and is trying to look out for her and, and represent her best interests even when she can't. So he's a little bit more important than most. And I think Wright gives him enormous heart and soul in that role. So yeah, really, really sad. Very sad indeed. Samuel E. Wright, who died this week at the age of 74. And just very quickly, folks, as well, uh, I'm going to put all my, my shameless plug hard hat 
and just plug shamelessly at you for a couple of minutes. The latest issue of Empire Magazine, in which the cover star is one, I had to Google this, Tom Cruise. I think I'm saying that right. Tom Cruise. Talk about everything they're doing on Mission Impossible 7 and 8 to help get the cinema industry, the cinematic industry, the film industry back up on its feet. Uh, that is available still in all good, evil and virtual news agents for the next, well, 12 days, I think, by the time you're listening to this. You have 12 days left to rush out and buy that. There's also a big screen preview of all the great films that will be coming your way in actual cinemas over the next few weeks and months. COVID, of course, notwithstanding. Very exciting stuff. Go and buy that issue. Do it now. Do it now. And I should also plug some great podcasts that we have put up for you as well. There is a Falcon and the Winter Soldier celebration with the show's head writer and executive producer, Malcolm Spellman. There is a special dedicated to our interview with Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd. Yes, indeed. Mary and Pippin themselves. They were going to be on this week's show, but the um, the interview was frankly chaotic, very, very funny and <laughs> ran over long. So we decided to package it up as a special for you guys. You don't have to thank me. It's part of the service. <laughs> And of course, if you don't already subscribe to our spoiler special subscription service, it's £2.99 a month or £32.99 a year. And you get access to our incredible archive of spoiler specials and you get many, many wonderful new spoiler specials as well coming your way, including that full interview with Malcolm Spellman on Falcon and the Winter Soldier, including Darius Marder on The Sound of Metal, including... What else is coming up over the next few weeks? Let me see. we got uh, Darren Lynn Bowsman on Spiral from the Book of Saw. We have John Krasinski on A Quiet Place Part 2. We have loads of stuff coming your way, folks. It is a cracking, cracking choice if you want to subscribe to that. And you can do so by going to empireonline.com forward slash spoiler specials. Spoiler specials. There you go. Shameless plug over. Heart hat off. It is now time to welcome this week's guest. Uh, making a triumphant return to the podcast I think for the first time since our live show in, I want to say 2017. My God, it's been a while. It's been a while. But Mark Strong is one of our favorite actors. You know him. He's been in everything. He's the bad guy in movies like Kick-Ass and Robin Hood and Green Lantern. And he's also brilliant in the likes of the Kingsman movies and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and 1917 and Shazam, more bad guy duty in that one as well. And this week he pops up as John the Fallot in Cruella. And uh, so I had the opportunity to talk to Mark for the first time in a while uh, this week, but he has been in my head for a long time. And that's where I started the interview because he is the voice of the government's COVID-19 announcements and briefings. So if you've put on the radio or TV at any point over the last 15 months or so, you will have heard Mark Strong's reassuring, deep, dulcet tones mm-hmm. telling you that everything is all right. And that's where we began. Here we go. Mark Strong. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined by the Empire Podcast by the star of Cruella, Mr. Mark Strong. How are you, sir? I'm very good. I'm very good. I have to take issue with you about Star of Cruella because I'm I'm very much not the star, I have to say. It's nice of you to say that, but it's <laughs> Emma Stone. Emma Stone is amazing in this film, I have to say, and Emma Thompson is also brilliant. I'm one of the, as they say, the supporting cast, but I'm happy to be involved because I love the film. Yeah, but Mark, I can't say we're delighted to be joined in the Emperor podcast by 
a star of Cuella, can I? I have to say the star well, of Cuella. It's nice. It's nice of you to say that, but you gave me the opportunity at least to, you know, to tell it like it is, which is, uh, <laughs> yeah. To set the record straight. How are you, sir? You, you, you good? I've, I've, I've had your, your voice in my head quite a lot during this pandemic. Yeah, that that was a turn up for the books to be the uh, the government um, voice for the COVID messaging. I mean, I, I to be honest with you, I was happy to be busy and uh, and happy to do something that was was helpful. You know what I mean? Because mm. all I was doing was being at home, switching the radio on, hearing the world falling apart. So to do something that was useful during that period was a was a godsend, really. Did you find that uh, when you were having contact with people, that when they heard your voice, they began to be, you know, back away from you a little bit? That it was, <laughs> that was... <laughs> no, it was fine. I mean, I only had complimentary, but I, uh, complimentary um, comments. But I, yeah. I understand what you're saying. I think the reason they asked me to do it is because, as they said to me, they, I have this sort of weird combination of a sort of uh, a vuncular, uh, calm, mm-hmm. reassuring tone with a hint of menace. I think that's what they were after. So this is the problem that we've got. Everybody be safe, but make sure you do it was sort of the, uh, you know, that was the vibe of the message. Follow our instructions and you'll be okay or else. Exactly. Exactly. Is yeah. what you were going for. Uh, well, yes, indeed. It, it, it was uh, it was great to hear you, but it was also great to see you in Cruella as a star of Cruella. Um, mm-hmm. How did this come about for you? How did you get involved with it in, in the first place? Do you know, I got a call from um, Craig Parkinson, the director. Uh, Craig Gillespie, what am I talking about? Craig Parkinson was in Temple with me. That's a completely yes. different person. Timmy Craig's. There's a lot of them about. Um, <laughs> but the Gillespie version, who's an Australian director who's rather brilliant, I loved his, I loved I, Tonya yeah. that he'd done. And, uh, but, but earlier than that, he'd done a film uh, called Lars and the Real Girl with Ryan Gosling that I kind of vividly remember at the time seeing and thinking how quirky and unusual and weird and brilliant. So when I was asked to go for a meeting, a chat with him, I said, of course. And it was for Cruella. I hadn't had a script at that point. And I sat with him and he said, look, I just need you to say the script isn't kind of ready, but I want you to play this part. And uh, there's not a huge amount of dialogue, but you will have presence. And you'll see why the character has to have presence because of the development of the narrative and what happens. Mm -hmm. And that was enough for me. I kind of thought, I love your work. So I want to work with people I like. And I was in. Did he show you uh, anything like a lookbook or where this was going? Because one of the things that really struck me about the movie is this is production designed within an inch of its life. It looks absolutely amazing. Everything yeah. in this movie is sumptuous and yeah. just immaculately tailored. Did you get a sense of that in your initial conversations with him? The visuals are amazing. You're right. And he did, actually. He was very proud to show me a couple of mock-ups of things like there's a moment when, I don't want to spoil it, but... Uh, you know, uh, something happens to Cruella's dress, you know, which uh, is a sort of an amazing slate of hand. And uh, there's another dress that she wears while on a bin cart that that turns out to be this fantastic sort of thing with a huge train. He showed me a couple of mock-ups of those because he was very proud of it. And obviously, uh, when I then read the script, if you just see it on the page, you think, how on earth are they going to do that? But what they've done is an incredible tour de force, I think. And the first time I saw the film, I saw it on my computer and it just doesn't do it justice, you know? And I said to them, is there any possibility I can see it on a big screen? So a screening was arranged and I saw it on the big screen. And honestly, it was like a different movie because those visuals you're talking about, plus the incredibly amazing soundtrack, just make the whole experience totally a cinema experience. Yeah, I, I managed to see it last week uh, on the big screen. It was it was wonderful. It was great yeah. to just be back in a cinema 
and to see something so intensely cinematic unfold as well on the big screen that was that was huge but uh it's just a sign it's a sign obviously we're doing this over over zoom mark ordinarily we'd be doing it in the same room but there's mm-hmm. a sign that things are beginning to return to normal uh are you finding yeah. that are you is normality beginning to return for you it does feel like that, doesn't it? I mean, I'm still cautious uh, and I don't want everything to kind of go too fast, but it's, it's, I think that's probably a better way to go rather than just think, hey, you know, everything's back to normal because it isn't. But uh, if I can be part of a movie that is one of the first movies that encourages people back into the cinema, then I'm very, I'll be very proud of that. And, and it's ironic that I don't think I can think of a film other than the big superhero movies that demands to be seen on a big screen more than this one, because those, those big sort of ballroom sequences that I'm involved with, you know, hundreds of uh, supporting artists and huge design, and it just looks ravishing and it needs to be up there in a, on a screen. So, yeah, let's, let's get people back into the cinema with it. And, and so going back to the idea of it being beautifully designed and, and the visuals are, are great, um, from your point of view as an actor, what was it like being in the middle of that? Because Craig seems to be a very, uh, not gimmicky, but a very flashy director. He likes to use the camera an awful lot. And uh, I had the good fortune not of being officially on set of this movie, but uh, I happened to live five minutes from the old Royal Naval College in, in Greenwich. And I was walking past one night and they had taken over the place to shoot the rock concert type party oh, scene. yes. Yeah, And yeah. so I... I stuck my head through the railings going, what is going on there? Oh, it's Cruella. Oh my God. Uh, and it just looked astonishing. And you're yeah. no stranger, of course, to big movies, but on the inside of this thing, looking out, what was, what was it like for you? You're right. I'm no stranger to big movies, but this is up there with, you know, any of them that I've done, I think. I mean, that sequence you're talking about is a huge stage, loads of people moving up and down, the kind of music, the sporting artists, everything. It's just a big, big canvas that he's painted on. And as an actor, it just means when you turn up for work, there's kind of no acting required because everything's taken care of, you know? <laughs> I come into a huge ballroom sequence. Everyone's dressed in, in uh, period French dresses and waiters are wandering around with trays full of, of real amazing food. Bouquets are spilling out all over this huge staircase. You're just there, you know? You don't have to compensate for anything. When I think of a lot of those so-called big movies I've done, usually that's done with green screen. So when I think back to, say, I don't know, Stardust. I remember a sequence when we're all sitting on a mantelpiece and we're meant to be watching my dead body fight Charlie Cox. And we're all sitting there watching it like a tennis match. And what we were actually in, all of us, and, you know, David Walliams was there, Rupert Everett and Jason Fleming, there was like six or seven of us all sitting on this green box in a green room uh, with four green rods with tennis balls on the top called A, B, C, and D, and Matthew on a microphone going, everyone look at A, and we'd all go like that. Everyone groan, oh, everyone look at D. Oh, you know, literally that's what we were doing. So none of it was there. It looks fantastic, I have to say. Yeah. But it was green screen. And the difference with this, none of those ballroom sequences I'm involved with were, were green screen. So they're amazing. So what part of your training prepares you for a day like that? On the green screen or the real stuff? The green screen. It, nothing can prepare you for it. I remember at the time thinking, this is ridiculous, because also it was kind of, I hadn't done a lot of movies like that before. Yeah. Um, and also, as an actor, you want to feel like you're bringing performance. You're not just literally sitting on a box being told to look at a bunch of tennis balls. But then when you see it, you realise how amazing it looks, and then you're happy to be involved, you know, and green screen actually becomes your friend. 
ironically, a lot of the stuff I did in John Carter, I was in a green box. We were in Utah and I was standing on a hill, but somehow the background wasn't exactly as they wanted. So they created a green box. So in something like 40 degree heat or something ridiculous, I got this massive costume on. I'm standing looking out at these huge canyons and everything. And then I have to walk through a little flap into a green box where we did some of the filming because it can be more easily controlled like that. Mm. And you begin to realize, you know, that, that, uh, that stuff is the stuff that really does look amazing. Mm. And then the far end of the spectrum, of course, you have your Green Lantern experience where it's green screen, <laughs> green screen costume as well, if I'm right in thinking. That was a strange skin tight gray outfit. Gray. With, okay. With little kind of ping pong balls on the joints. And I think that was blue screen, actually. I never know the difference between blue or green and why, why they should be. I don't think it makes any difference, but that was blue screen. I also had to wear these kind of 1970s style platform shoes because Sinestro is meant to be like seven foot tall. Yeah, but that's another amazing thing. But you just, it's play acting. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like being a big kid in the middle of, of, of playing a game and you just happen to have this, you know, green or blue screen around you. Whereas on Cruella, it's all there for you. Everything you're surrounded by it. I didn't see a hint of green in Cruella. I mean, there may be bits that were done like that, but, but those sequences that I'm involved in, those big mm-hmm. ballroom sequences, they were real. Everything you see is real. Yeah. Your character, John, the, the, the phallic, we can't really talk too much about him because there are various turns that depend on, on him, but uh, people might go into this movie thinking that he is an out-and-out baddie, that's mm. not the case, I think we can say. Yeah, I, I'm sure that's why Craig was interested in me playing the part. I think the baggage that you bring um, mm. for the movies that I've done probably served that part really well because you, you want people not to trust him because he's part of the Baroness, Emma Thompson's gang, and she is the evil villain ice queen. And uh, the fact that he's sort of part of that team means you just assume that he's one of the bad guys, but actually it turns out it's more interesting than that. And there are secrets in her past that he knows of, but plays everything very close to his chest. So he's quite a mysterious character for the first half of the movie. And that must be manner from heaven for you as well, because you know, as you, as you've just acknowledged, you have a, a number of bad guys in, in your, in your history as well. And I imagine you still get those parts you know, they they still come up and they're they're still offered to you every now and again. And I, I know from speaking to you in the past that you're not at first to take in those parts, but it's also something that, you know, there's an element of slight reluctance, I would say. Well, I think um, I've, you know, I've never been averse to taking them because there is this concept of being typecast, but yeah, the only thing that links them is that they're bad guys. What they actually are is they're all incredibly interesting and different characters. So if you look at uh, Frank D'Amico compared to in, mm. in Kick-Ass to, to Godfrey in Robin Hood, to, Sher- to Blackwood in Sherlock Holmes, to uh, Savannah in Shazam, they're all really interesting characters to play. And that's what you're looking for, I am, in a film. Yeah. I want to play somebody who's interesting. The fact they happen to be the villain is kind of incidental. It says something, though, that the villains often seem to get the best clothes, the best lines, and, you know, have the best fun in a movie. And also you get to exorcise something that you don't do in everyday life. I mean, if you're the hero, you can be kind and generous and wonderful in real life. You could do that, no problem. But you can't go down the street threatening everybody and 
plumbing deep rage and causing havoc, nor can you make uh, uh, electricity come out of your eyes, frankly. So <laughs> I love those parts because uh, because they're, they're different, you know. But there was a time when I thought, okay, I'm, I'm looking for other things. And Merlin actually yeah. turned out to be a rather yeah. lovely guy in Kingsman. And I suppose in Grimsby, uh, as, as nutty as the film is, he's a, he's a nominal hero, this guy, a sort of James Bond type. Uh, and in Temple, my series that I do yeah. for Sky, I'm playing a, a guy who's more perhaps conflicted rather than a villain. So what's lovely is being able to mix it up. It just so happens that a lot of the big movies I've done, mm. um, they've come to me for the villain. And of course, on this one, you get a, a ringside seat for two shiny bits of villainy. Yes. Well, what's great, actually, is, is being able to watch the women strut their stuff, Yeah. to watch Emma Thompson and Emma Stone be as, as deliciously cruel as they are. You have an awful lot of scenes with both of them. Uh, what was that experience like for you? I, actually, this morning I came up with the idea. It's like, it's like being the meat in an Emma sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> you could argue. Um, no, it was brilliant. I mean, they're, they're great. Emma's, you know, we're similar age and we've come through the business the same amount of time. And although I've only met her a couple of times, maybe in the past, very fleetingly, I've not worked with her. And Emma Thompson is just very charming and funny and witty and great company on set. And as you well know, you know, downtime makes up more time than actually being on camera mm -hmm. during a, a filming day. So you want to make sure you're with people that you like. And she was great. And Emma Stone, I was, I have to say, incredibly impressed with. She's so good. You know, she's so professional, but just brilliantly watchable. I, I saw her on, in the movie and realized, wow, you've kind of, you were carrying this whole movie. And the delicious or, or wonderful nuance that she puts from, you know, being a girl who's put upon working at Liberties to the, the, the gorgeously cruel one we, we meet at the end and everything in between, that was all done while on set she was being really lovely with everybody, you know, and happy to talk to anyone. So when there's, when there's downtime on a set, Mark, do you, are you the sort of actor who likes to hang out with other actors? Do you retreat your trailer? Or if you do hang out with other actors... What's what's happening? Is there gossip? Is there improv games? What, what's 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 going on? Yeah, I mean, I do like to hang out with other actors. You, 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 there's gossip going on. There's there's also often I'll I'll just talk to people about their process and what they're doing and why they're doing it and how they are and how their work life balances and all stuff. I mean, just just general kind of water cooler chit chat basically. But it does allow you, for example, when I was doing Body of Lies, to sit with Leonardo DiCaprio. We sat together. Uh, had a cup of tea one day and I got to ask him about, you know, how he works. And he said to me, it's you, it's the director, you know, in film, the director is in charge. So what you want to be doing is working with the best directors if you can. And I've always sort of taken that to heart. Of course he's right. You know, mm. you know, any of them, Russell Crowe, Clooney, all of them that I've kind of worked with, you, you end up having a bit of time where you're sitting in your little high chair waiting for things to be set up and you just sort of, shoot the breeze. It's always interesting because I, usually I just want to get under the skin of these people who superficially are very famous and they're, they're known in a certain way. And of course, what you discover, as I'm sure everybody is fully aware of, is that they're really quite ordinary, normal, lovely people underneath it all. Uh, I've got to let you go in a second, but uh, I just wanted to ask about, I know that you shot the second series of Temple yeah. uh, in the pandemic. How was that? That was uh, extraordinary. I mean, we were due to go when the, when the lockdown happened and we didn't know whether the thing was going to happen at all. And we got pushed and turned out we were one of the first shows that went back filming in August. And it was largely due to Liza, my wife, who produces the show, Liza Marshall. She, 
she basically got in touch with a bunch of virologists and doctors and found out how you could keep going and what protocols were needed to be put in place. And she kind of invented, you know, or, or realized that having bubbles, so each makeup, you know, the makeup girls were in one bubble, the wardrobe guys were in another bubble. And if there was any, you couldn't cross fertilize those bubbles, you know, so it kept everybody separate, temperature checks, you know, hand washing, masks, all of the stuff that we're now familiar with. That, that happened every day. And we shot for 96 days. And we did, I think, something like 2,500 tests and only had one positive result between August and January, wow. which was in the, the teeth of the pandemic. And it just shows that I think all, this, all these protocols, they really do work. And it was a blueprint for everybody being able to get back to work. So props to her for that. And I was quite proud to be part of a show that was up and running very early on. Did it elongate the schedule? I mean, uh, I've I've been on one set uh, in lockdown, and they were incredibly fastidious. Obviously, about COVID tests and about COVID precautions and protocols and all that sort of stuff. And I know it adds money onto the budget, but does mm. it also add time onto the the schedule? A little bit. But what's amazing about film sets is how smoothly they run. You know, they're designed to be like almost military style operations. So all we did was we accommodated the early morning temperature check. You just came in a bit earlier than perhaps you normally would. Every second day you were being tested. That was accommodated for in the timing. But the actual shooting, not really, no. I mean, once everybody had their masks on and uh, we'd worked out how everyone was going to eat safely and be safe, it pretty much felt like normal. And what I really worried about was that the banter and the fun of being on set would, would disappear, but, if, but it didn't. You know, It's like um, you know, the camaraderie of being under the cosh, usually yeah. waking up really early and having to go really late, had this added sort of tension of the fact that we were all trying not to infect each other or <laughs> keep each other safe. Um, yeah, that was all, that was all uh, really cool. I've got a blue thing going across me. Can you see that? It's, it's, it's quite beautiful, actually. Yeah, the there's, there's a, yeah it feels like J.J. Abrams has directed this Zoom call. It's, I don't it's, know what it's that glorious. is. It's glorious. You've got a beautiful lens flare. I think that's what I, it is. Mark, I think this this blue light works for you. You should take it with you wherever you go from now Thanks. on. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to work out how that's happening. <laughs> Indeed. On that note, Mark Strong, as always, a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much. Cheers, Chris. Lovely to talk to you. Likewise. Ever. Take care. All right. So that was Mark Strong. And now it is time to delve deep into this week's movies, some of which, in fact, all of which are in actual cinemas. <laughs> Can you imagine such a thing? Actual, actual cinemas. We just spoke to Mark Strong. He's in Cruella. Let's talk about Cruella. Helen. Hello. Yes. So Cruella, um, as you all know, it's my very favorite genre of thing. Oh, it no, is I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> a prequel. <laughs> what have I done? With giving a sympathetic, to some degree, backstory to a villainous character. Wow. Amazing. That said, this is a pretty good example of the genre. It's brought oh, to Oh, good, because I was by... just going to play your previous rant in this from episodes <laughs> 75, 103, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's about right. Um, so it's yeah, brought to us by Craig Gillespie, of course, of, of I, Tonya, Lars and the Real Girl fame, and some mm -hmm. other films that we maybe didn't like quite as much. Um, mm -hmm. Starring Emma and Emma. It's Emma Stone playing Estella, who is the young Cruella, the future Cruella. I don't think Estella! that's a giveaway. Um, and she is, uh, how to put this, she is orphaned as a young girl through an unfortunate series of events. Uh, she goes to live on the tough streets of London with two other young foundlings who grew up to be Joel Fry and Paul Walter Hauser. And the three of them together have a little bit of a kind of scam game going on. 
they're living on their wits. But Estella really does love fashion and she wants to be a fashion designer. And she finally gets her big break thanks to a job working for The Baroness, who's played by Emma Thompson. And that's when the film uh, really kind of takes off. Uh, She is kind of, there is a genuine fashion history kind of thread running through this with The Baroness kind of representing the old guard and the sort of Dior's and so on. And uh, Emma Stone's Estella kind of, or certainly Cruella, representing the kind of Vivian Westwood kind of punk fashion of the 70s. Hmm. But that's a whole other story. What really is going on here is um, Estella's attempts to kind of figure out who she is and find herself and maybe get revenge for certain things that have gone wrong in her life. And that that involves the manifestation of this Cruella persona. Yes. So she's been, when we're introduced to her at the beginning, like she has this kind of dark side. She gets into fights at school. It's something that her mum, her kind of rather saintly mum, played by Emily Beecham, is is sort of trying to keep her calm about and keep under control. But it's always been a side of her, but it's a question of how much that side will be indulged and will be allowed to come out. That all said, she is a dog lover, so she's not quite the Cruella we know and hate or love to hate. Um, she actually has a pet dog um, and, you know, seems like quite a nice kid when we first meet her and does have this nice Estella personality at the same time. Yes. So it is a really interesting kind of kind of coming of age story, kind of coming into your own power story. There is a very sympathetic line running through Estella slash Cruella's history and you can see why the Cruella person persona would be valuable to her and necessary to her to kind of find her place in the world. It's a tough world that she lives in in sort of sixties and seventies London. I still just don't think this film has a reason to exist. But no, no films do. No films do. I would disagree with that. Many None films are do. necessary. I do. <laughs> okay, look, I, 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 I disagree with the whole premise of the film. I disagree with the fact that it basically has to retcon large, large swathes of 101 Dalmatians in order to make itself work. Um, I think a lot of the needle drops, while they are some killer tunes, are extraordinarily on the nose. Uh, there are a lot of things that are not great about this. On the other hand, there's Emma and Emma, who are bloody fantastic, particularly mm. Emma Thompson, who is utterly flawless in everything that she does, says. And I mean, this is not news to anyone. This has been true for at least 40 years. But, you know, she is amazing in this. And uh, I I loved her every second on screen. You may wonder at times why Mark Strong is there. You may be suspicious that he's not doing enough, given the size of his, you know, career and persona. But um, just general head. He's got got quite a large head. Sure. But... uh, but no, he's he he is there for a reason. It, you know, it's a really good cast all round. There's some cute bits with a dog for the kids. There's some less cute bits with dogs, and you can see why the Dalmatians come out of this quite badly. But generally speaking, it's it's pretty successful. It's a little mm. bit long, maybe. That's it is definitely long. Yeah, it's over two hours, I think. So it is. I would two maybe hours have fifteen trimmed that yeah. a little bit. But at the same time, I I do think it it has some originality. It does add something into the Cruella kind of myth. And, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. if you are not like me and do like a prequel involving a sympathetic backstory for a beloved villain, then this will be, this is one of the best examples of the form. It is better than Maleficent. It's better than Hook. I mean, this is not a high bar, but it is a really, (laughs) (laughs) this is a really fun example of the form. I really like both the Maleficent films, actually. But uh, I I weirdly like Maleficent. I never felt like Maleficent was like a retcon of... 
you know, she massively Snow White. is. Like, no, she I know it is, but I always took it so. as a separate beast. Like it's yeah. almost like, like in the in the same way, the truth is subjective. The way a story told from someone is a completely different story. I, I kind of saw it that way. She's a, almost like a different character. And in this, history is told by the winners, right? No, but, but like, okay, but Indeed. like, I think, for example, Cobra Kai does that brilliantly. Yeah, because it doesn't retcon what happened in the films. Sure, that's because it's a sequel. Whereas both Maleficent surely. and this totally wreck on what happened See, in the I, films but the thing is, it's like, I don't feel it's like it's not like going back and you know like the Phantom Menace takes some liberties with like Darth Vader as a character like is anyone really bothered that they're retconning fucking 101 am, Dalmatians man. like who gives a shit I'm like this film is so much more fun than 101 Dalmatians like I really Whoa. enjoyed this film Whoa. no it is animated I'm or live sorry. action animated live action I mean either but uh, <gasps> I yeah I'm I really enjoyed close. this film I thought Emma Stone is fucking brilliant in this and i think cast anyone else in that role and potentially this film does not work uh but i think she completely nails it and as helen said both the emmas in this are fabulous mm. and it's like three films in one like it starts with like a bit of matilda then it becomes the devil wears prada and then it turns into cruella with all its flamboyant joy the costumes are great the hair is great the costumes the are incredible are great. yeah yeah it, there's so like visually it's just it's it just blows your mind uh it's got you know joel fry his darzo lorak always good to see him doing some things um Oh my god! <laughs> what? But yeah, I, I had so much fun with this film, and I didn't expect to. I, you're absolutely right; it is definitely too long. I could lose half an hour easily because it, mm. it just it labours the point a little bit. But I think you enjoy Emma Stone's company so much, and the way that she graduates from the character of Estella to the character of Cruella and essentially transitions into this new person uh, I thought was done really really well and I, I thought it was great there's also a credit sting so do there hang is, around yeah, for that do hang around, yeah. uh, which is an important one to watch but <laughs> yes. uh, yeah like, and I did like I said didn't expect to love this but really did and you know and I know there's lots of grief about you know people don't like prequels for villains and you know I'm sure I've gone off on this when it's something that I care about but when it's something like this where I fundamentally <laughs> don't care about the source material I'm all for it oh sooner God. or later we'll get to something you do care about <laughs> Um, I also think that anybody who has ever been to the Old Royal Naval College in Greenwich will recognise huge numbers oh, yeah. of locations in this film. Um, it's one of those things that's very distracting to us locals, right? It's I mean- fucking distracting. Oh, good for you. Yeah, it's um, it's Greenwich the movie, basically. It is Greenwich the movie, yeah, it really is. Um, did you know that Bridgerton two, season two was at Greenwich this week? I did know that, yes. Yeah. I did, yeah. It's very, it's very uh, versatile uh, really in looking is. exactly like it does <laughs> in, all, <laughs> in all those movies. But uh, but still, yes, Greenwich movie. It's very, very Greenwich-centric. Uh, although Greenwich is playing Regent's Park uh, an awful mm. lot in this movie. And I kind of wondered why. Mm. Because, you know, it could easily just been Greenwich. I did think fountain. that. I said, that looks fuck all like Regent's Park. <laughs> yeah. But then again, it's a movie made for people who don't know what Regent's Park looks like by and large. So, and, and, and it's a ye olde times as well, the 1970s, when things were very, very different. So I, listen, I had a blast with this. I did not expect mm. to like this movie much, if indeed at all. Uh, but I did. Craig Gillespie is one of the MVPs of the movie. Mm. <laughs> There's a shock. The director is the MVP of a movie because... The, the sense of style and playfulness that he brought to Itonia is continued here. It's really dark at times, but he's throwing his camera around. As I said to Mark Strong in the uh, in the interview, the thing is production designed and costume designed and hair and makeup designed to within an inch of its life. If Jenny Bevan doesn't win oh my God. an Oscar next year for costume, mm. yeah. something has 
gone very, very wrong. Or there are fantabulous costumes coming up in films that we have not yet seen. Yeah, her work here is astonishing. Really, really beautiful to look at. I, I enjoyed the on the noseness of the needle drops. The, the, the song that plays us out at the end is so on the nose, but it's kind of also the perfect choice. So I'm not so sure where it scores on the Semeckis scale of on the nose needle drops. It, you know, it kind of worked for me. It, it's very funny. I think uh, Paul Walter Hauser does the best Cockney accent I have ever heard a non-English person do. Good, good times were had by all. Well done, yeah. everybody. Worth noting that this is a 12A and the prologue has a development which is very dark. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of not to be underestimated. This is not for young children. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, look, it's really fun. It, it, I like Again, I have problems with its entire existence, <laughs> but that aside, it's really fun. Yes, indeed. If you can get past problems with its entire existence, what? then this is a lot of fun. Four stars in for Cruella, which is in cinemas this week, but it's also available as a premium rental on Disney+. Plus. I think it's 20 quid on Disney+. Plus. Next up, we have the third, but also eighth installment <laughs> <laughs> in the Conjuring franchise, uh, mm. which is the Conjuring the devil made me do it. And whenever I saw the Empire Review go up this week and it said the eighth installment in the country franchise, I, my mind broke a little bit. I was like, really? How? Yeah. Really? Are we yeah. eight films into this franchise already? Then I did the maths. And yes, indeed, we do have eight country films, three country movies, three Annabelle movies, mm-hmm. one nun movie, and one Curse of La Llorona movie. And oh, this is the Warren's the- fourth appearance. Yes. So it all makes sense. It's, it's all connected. It's all connected. So yes, The Conjuring, first two country movies directed by James Wan, told the story, quote unquote, of Ed and Lorraine Warren, mm. who were paranormal investigators. There's lots of air quotes going on here. Just liberally apply air quotes <laughs> to everything that I'm saying, who investigated Always and do. did battle with evil forces um, <laughs> during, during the 70s and 80s. And uh, their investigations formed the basis of the first two country movies, um, and I love those films. I think they're really, really great. This one, James Wan is not directing. He is merely producing a Michael Chavez who directed The Curse of La Llorona, takes the director's chair in this one. Tell us about it, Jimbo. So this is set in 1981, and as you'd imagine, features an extraordinarily terrifying uh, series of period costumes. Uh, Patrick Wilson's sideburns alone are one of the most horrifying things in this film. But uh, So the paranormal investigating duo, the sort of latter-day modern scully, if you will, of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Prior surely, day. surely. Yeah, former prior day. day. Yeah, former day. Whatever, Last, what, 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 what is the phrase? The other what thing. Is the, phrase? <laughs> the, the one that comes before. Yes. They're <laughs> Not prequels. Latter-day. <laughs> they're, they're, they're the Mulder and Scully prequel. Yes, that's it. The older ones. Anyway, they're <laughs> investigating in this. It starts with a big exorcism sequence, uh, and then it goes on to, for them investigating uh, demonic possession. A young man, played by Rory O'Connor, uh, murders his <gasps> landlord, but while he's under the influence of Satan. So the idea oh, is they go... Dominus, indeed. Oh, I'm hungry Uh, now. They have to prove initially that it's the devil that made him do it. And there's a period of this where you go in and they're talking to the defense attorney. And I thought, oh my God, is this going to be a conjuring 
courtroom drama because I'm 100% here for this. Like, mm-hmm. I was really excited. Unfortunately, that is not the case. And it's another <laughs> investigative one. But this one is less concerned with spooks and stuff, and it's more concerned with Satanism and curses and things like that. And I think as a result, this works on one level and doesn't work on another. On one level, I think the actual mechanics of the horror film work really well. I think Chavez has got a good uh, handle on what makes things scary what makes things go bump in the night there are some really solid scares in here it's quite chilling very very creepy unfortunately the cult element of this just makes things a bit dappy it's a little bit farcical Mm. it just feels a bit silly and it doesn't have the same teeth that i think the haunted house stuff does which is genuinely properly chilling and i think like the aspects of this the, the possession moments of this certainly early on work really well the prologue stuff is actually very scary but the further it goes on the more the plot begins to kind of reveal itself i think the less frightening this becomes because it just feels a bit daft so i think it does lose its way towards the end so i did enjoy this i think it's decent it's mid-tier conjuring for me um but you know <laughs> i won't be i don't think i'll be going back back to it anytime soon yeah it's it's not up there with the scariest of the franchise for me and and i genuinely would have quite liked the courtroom drama mm. conjuring i think that would have been 100%, really fun because yeah. there's a gag with the defense lawyer that's yeah. properly funny and works really well mm-hmm. and, and i think you could do a lot because there was that whole satanic panic in the 80s and there were courtrooms taking this stuff quite seriously and i think mm. you could have done something with that and if i remember correctly like the exorcism of emily rose almost had a little yep. bit of that going on and yep. you could have brought some of that in so yeah i would have i mean not to you know criticize the film i wanted to see as opposed to the one i did but like there's a little bit of that going on but i agree i think that the ultimate baddie is not terribly interesting or effective and I kind of wanted it to feel a bit more hung together. But it's, it's not bad. It's just I, mm. it wasn't up there with the best of The Conjuring for me. The very best of The Conjuring. We're so close to being able to do a ranking of The Conjuring. We didn't even know it. Oh, well, now you do. Only two That's more to go. That's the greatest trick the devil ever pulled, if you ask me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I feel that James Wan was very... Not sorely missed, because I had a decent time with it. And it made me jump when the movie wanted to make me jump. So it was all very effective in that way. And I really love... Fear of Farmiga and Patrick Wilson in these roles. Mm. There's, you know, whether or not they're playing any anything remotely close to what the real and the rain were like is up for debate, obviously. But they, the movie is built on them, and it's built in this strong love they have for each other, and that's really lovely. But for me, there was nothing as wonderful and weird and offbeat and characterful as that bonkers bit in the country too where he whips out a guitar and starts playing an Elvis song <laughs> and you could you could you just missed James Wan's visual pizzazz mm. you know the man can throw a camera around and he can mount a jump scare as good as anyone I've seen since my beloved Lord Sam Raimi that's two mentions this week at least and there will be a third there will be a third oh yes and he and Michael Chavez just doesn't quite have those chops. It all mm. felt a little conventional to me. But if you're in the mood for going into a cinema, a cinema, an actual cinema with actual people and jumping every five minutes and being really, really scared as beloved characters get into peril, maybe wait a week for a Quiet Place Part 2. But oh. if you can't wait a week, then go and see The Country and the Devil Maybe Do It. We gave it three stars. That's exactly where I have landed on it as well. Yeah. I think it's where these guys are also. Three stars then for The Country the devil made me do it. If there is going to be a country in four, I'd like to see James Wan return, but we shall see. Next up is the return to directing of Kelly Reichardt, the director of Mix Cutoff and Night Moves, not the Gene Hackman Night Moves, the 
Jesse Eisenberg Night Moves. Uh, and this is First Cow. Mm. Hell's Bells. Yeah, this made a huge splash at festivals back in about 2019. And, you know, I've been hearing great things about it for over a year now. So I was really, really excited to to see this. And you know what? It didn't let me down. I really actually did enjoy it. It is a slow burn. It's two hours long, which is shorter oh, than Cruella. Oh, cow. No, steady on, Chris. Come on. It's a very, very likable cow. It is a slow burn. You want to get into that Terence Malachy, Jim Jarmuschian kind of headspace where you're just like, you know what? I'm not expecting an explosion every five minutes and that's okay, you know? But it is a fascinating story. So it does start with a kind of modern day framing device with a woman out walking her dog, Aaliyah Shawkat, but that doesn't really matter. Don't, I'm just mentioning it because you don't want to worry that you're watching the wrong screener, which I had a moment of worrying about because I knew this was set in the 1820s. And I was like, why am I seeing modern day stuff? Mm. That happens. It's worth watching. Keep track of what happens in that scene. I'm not going to get into it too much. Then we go back to the 1820s and we meet our kind of two hero characters. So John McGarrow plays Cookie, who is traveling in the um, Oregon territories. It's a very kind of wild part of the country at the time. Um, he's kind of a frontier explorer. It's an area that makes money from um, fur trapping and beaver pelts. Steady, guys. I know I said beaver. And uh, <laughs> he he's, you know, seeking his fortune and kind of a little bit, I think, aimless uh, compared to the friend that he meets. Uh, he meets a guy called King Lou, who's played by Orion Lee, who's kind of on the run when they first meet. Uh, and then they fall in together. They kind of strike up a friendship. And... What follows is sort of a parable about the American dream, I think, uh, and class and opportunity and the equality of opportunity and, you know, how people can get ahead in an unequal system. It's kind of, it could be a farce. The, so the, the basic setup of the, of the rest of the story for these two guys is that there is one cow in this area. It is, it is owned by a very rich man who's played by Toby Jones. And they start secretly milking the cow and baking biscuits and things and selling them at a profit because nobody else has any milk. And this is how they're trying to make their fortune. And of course, it's fraught with risk because if they're found stealing the milk, they could get in trouble. This could absolutely be the plot of a Laurel and Hardy short. But but here it's something else. It's it's sort of often funny. It's kind of sweet that the friendship is really, I think, beautifully played between these two guys. But it's also kind of looking at more kind of structural stuff and, and how the West was maybe not one and how things were kind of wrong from the beginning. And I kind of loved it. I just find it really meditative and 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 quite tense at times. And I was worried for the fate mm -hmm. of these two as they went milking of a night time. And I just wanted, you know, everybody to come out of it well and, and end up living happily ever after and opening a bakery in San Francisco. And I was worried that that wouldn't happen. So uh, I, I just find it enormously effective. Incredibly good performances, a really likable cast of Towns characters who felt like they had sort of swept up there from all over the world and just kind of ended up at the end of the world. I mean, helped by the fact that you've got, you know, People in there that like you and Bremer and and people with Northern Irish accents, so you know that they're you know they're really on their uppers. Um, <laughs> I just I just really liked it. Yeah. Yeah, I thought Greenwich looked incredible as well. <laughs> Unrecognizable for once. Unrecognizable for once. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on this. I thought it was uh, terrific. After a slow start, I, I'll be honest. My you know my my modern brain 
designed to be stimulated in 16 different ways every five seconds. Took a while to plug into the rhythms of this movie. Or rhythm. There's just one rhythm, basically, of this movie, which is slow uh, and deliberate and methodical. But it's really well played, and it draws you into, as Helen said, the the friendship between Cookie and King Lou. It's also, by the way, a beautiful cow. I think that's really important. When you've only got one cow in a film, like it has to be a really good looking cow. Mm. And this is a really lovely cow. Super prime heifer. Full marks for the cow. Is it a heifer? Is a heifer? Yeah. It would be a heifer, wouldn't it? Yeah. I think so. Oh, there's an age thing, isn't there? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is I grew up next to cows for years. I love them. They're very friendly. They're very, very docile. And I love everything they do. Well done, cows. Do you know they kill a bunch of people every year in this country? I don't love that. No. I I, I condemn strongly. I don't have any cows listening to this, but if you are and you do kill people, stop it. Wow. Okay. Steady on, Chris. Anyway, four stars then for Kelly Reichardt's First Cow, which is available in cinemas this weekend and next weekend, I think, and then goes on to Mubi. It is a Mubi film, so you have to subscribe to Mubi to watch it after that. I think that's the way it's working with that movie. And last but not least this week, we're going to round off with Ben Wishaw giving James a panic attack Hmm. in Surge. Oh, God, yes. So this is a Neil Carriers film, and it is a lot. I think best described, I think, as Paddington falling down. This is essentially uh, Ben Wishaw going off the deep end, and it is a, a supremely... Stressful, stressfully banal is what I would call how I describe this film. Uh, so Ben Wishaw plays Joseph, and he works at the airport as a kind of customs agent, frisking people and going through there, you know, making sure their liquids are all in their little transparent bag and whatnot. He spends a lot of his time being lonely, not having friends, and chewing on glasses for reasons that I don't fully understand. What, like uh, in but- like the way that Daniel Craig did in Girl with Dragon Tattoo, or a different way? No, the way that you put a glass in your mouth and, and oh, bite, no. down. bite a yeah. chunk out of it. Yeah, oh, no. it's, it's it's not nice. But he has, well, put it this way. The synopsis of the film, the official synopsis, is set over 24 hours in London. Surge is a stripped-back thriller about a man who goes on a bold and reckless journey of self-liberation, which is certainly one way of describing this. He, he goes off the deep end a little bit, goes a bit berserk at work, walks out of his job, spends an in disproportionate amount of time titting about with someone's HDMI t- uh, cables. Uh, and then, you know, just goes on a kind of crazy, not even really exactly a crime spree, but like a spree of just not giving a shit and just being slightly unhinged. And I think Wishall plays this really well. He plays unhinged well. It's all sort of ticks and quirks and talking to himself. There's a part where he rents a room in a hotel uh, and can't sleep. So tears open the mattress and climbs inside it before trashing the room. It's a really slow film. And each scene is kind of him doing something crazy, but not in a kind of, you know, Michael Douglas falling down way where he's going to whip out a gun and start shooting people or he's going to attack people because this is Ben Whishaw. You know, he's not the most threatening person alive. There's a part where he tries to punch someone very, very badly. So it's like each scene builds to a crescendo, but doesn't quite reach it and then resets for the next scene, which builds to another quite banal, but also very stressful crescendo. There's one where he crashes a wedding party, which is, again, it's very, very blood pressure raising, but not all that interesting. So I found this film quite boring, but also very, very stressful. Um, I'm <laughs> not sure combo. I particularly... Indeed, it was, it was a slightly odd combination for me. I thought Wishel's performance in this was very good and quite well-tuned. Yeah, I, I didn't really get on with this. I didn't see the purpose of it, and I didn't really like it. 
Uh, as an acting piece, yes. As a kind of film, no. Especially not, I mean, as a short, maybe, but over, you know, a feature length runtime, mm. this really outstayed its welcome for me. Where would you be in the, uh, in the star rating, Jimbo? Mm. I'm, I might give it a three for effort, but <laughs> definitely a low two for enjoyment. <laughs> a, three, a three for effort, low two for enjoyment, but Surge is out this weekend. It's an incredible performance from Ben Wishaw. So if you fancy going to see that, then do so. But be warned, this is not an easy sit. You may need to take a Surge protector. Oh, oh boy. God. And on that Oof. note, I think that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when I'll be mentioning Sam Raimi one more time. Told you to be a third mention. <laughs> And we'll be joined by a cavalcade of guests. Cavill spelled C-A-V-A-L, not C-A-V-I-L-L. That'll be a different show entirely in a couple of years' time, maybe. Who knows? Anyway, we'll be joined by Jodie Turner-Smith, who is the new Anne Boleyn in a Channel 5 TV show. Yes, once again, we're encroaching on pilot TV podcast territory. <laughs> we'll also be joined by, I think... Next week, I think we'll be joined next week by Kate Heron, who is Ooh. the director of Loki, which starts very, very soon. June 9th is when Loki begins its six episode run. And Kate Heron, who, as it turns out, is a longtime listener of this very, very podcast, will indeed be a guest on next week's show or maybe the week after. No, I think next week's show. And we'll also be joined. <laughs> there's a, I told you there's a whole ton of guests. We'll be joined by... The star of Quiet Place Part 2, Killian Murphy himself. Helen just raised her eyebrows to, to, to show that she approves of Killian Murphy's aesthetic qualities. I, hey, I didn't say anything about his aesthetic qualities, although obviously he's very handsome. It was a double eyebrow raise. You don't do that if you admire wow. someone just for their acting. It was a I double eyebrow raise. I saw his uh, one-man show at I the National Theatre a few well, we years ago. It's right there in 28 Days Later, right at the beginning. Oh my God. <laughs> Anywho, look forward to that interview, which I'm not doing, so it's fine. <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, on that note, that is it. <laughs> I've done that bit already. Anyway, on that note, join us next week. No, I've done that as well. Hang on. <laughs> one percent. One percent. Oh yes. Anyway, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from my two colleagues of such lethal cunning squadcast names, Cruellen. <laughs> Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Uh, it is goodbye from Surge with a twist of lemon. James Dyer. Goodbye, Chris. And it's goodbye from me. The DeVille made me do it. See what I did there? Linking two films this week. Honestly, I raced into this room with that name because I thought that at least one of you would have it. Uh, But neither of you are as predictable as as me. (laughs) (laughs) You overestimate us both. Yes, indeed. Uh, The DeVille made me do it. Anyway, I am off to do some further research into this danger wanking I hear so much about. I, I, I mean, I'm going to be Googling it. What did you think I meant? Thanks for listening. See you next week. (laughs) Bye.